All right, so let's go ahead and get started. Appreciate everyone being here this afternoon. It's the, uh, towards the end of a long week. I hope everyone's had a great conference, and I know there's a, a replay event this evening, so uh, we'll, try and, we'll try and be quick about it. We, we don't want to rush, but uh, make sure that everyone has their fun this evening. Uh, my name is Michael Barris. I'm a senior database engineer with the RDS Oracle team. I've uh, been a DB engineer with Amazon Web Services for a little over two years now, and an Oracle DBA at uh, Amazon Kindle for about five and a half years before that. So lots of Oracle in my background. We, we love working on the product. We love talking about what we build for our customers, we get to do really cool things, but even more than that, we love uh, hearing our customers talk about their success stories and, and, and how they've made their journey with RDS. So I'm really happy that we also have Sid Arthram from the, the chief business, chief architect of uh, the small business division at Intuit. He's also going to be talking here with me this afternoon. Uh, before I get started, can I just, just get a real quick poll of the audience? Who's using RDS for Oracle today? Awesome. Who's using RDS for anything else? Excellent. Who's never seen RDS, touched it, smelled it, tasted it at all? Excellent. We got some newcomers. Wonderful. Appreciate it. Um, so just a quick look at the agenda. I'm going to do a, just a real quick introduction to RDS. Um, just give you a quick overview. Hopefully everyone is familiar with the value propositions of RDS and the reasons that customers want to use it and love using it. Um, and then going to turn it over to Siddharth, and he's going to talk about Intuit's journey with RDS. And then I'm going to take another 20 minutes after that and kind of do a little bit more of a deep dive into some of the advanced features of RDS for Oracle, explain some, some gotchas, how some things work, and talk about some of the things that, that uh, made Intuit's journey such a success. So just go ahead and dive right in. So in the beginning, there was EC2, the Amazon Elastic Compute Cloud. I might be skipping a few years. Um, but essentially, AWS started with EC2. We added S3 storage, we added EBS block storage. Customers started building really cool things, and they figured out we could build databases, all sorts of things, but especially database servers um, in the cloud. And they started doing that, and they figured out, this is kind of, we can do it, it works. It's kind of annoying to do it over and over again. Managing databases is not really what we signed up to be here for. So um, early on in, in the AWS journey, we started building managed database services. So today in, in AWS, we have a family of relational and non-relational managed database services available for customers. So we have things like our Redshift highly scalable data warehouse database. We have our DynamoDB NoSQL database. We have ElastiCache for in-memory caching. And then we have the relational database service. And essentially, you can think of this, if you were to go build a database in the Amazon Web Services Cloud, you would provision an EC2 instance. You would put EBS block storage underneath it. You would configure snapshots to S3. You would install an operating system, database software, and build databases on top of that essentially what we're doing for you. So RDS is essentially the automation of all those steps, making everything a lot more easy for you, making everything a lot more managed and automated. So we're managing your infrastructure. It's push of a button in the API, the console. You get a database in a few minutes. We allow you to manage and configure your database via parameter and option groups, and we give you a lot of ways of interacting with it. We do say it's scalable and fast. So obviously, we have different workloads that change sizes over time. We have two major dimensions that we're going to scale RDS with. There's storage. So the size and the performance of the storage can change over time. And then the compute resources available. So EC2 instances that you, you choose to run your database workloads on, we provide a, a pretty good selection of those. You'll notice that not every single EC2 instance is available for RDS databases. We sort of pick the ones that make the most sense for database workloads, but we give you a pretty broad selection. And then as your workload changes over time, we allow you to scale those up and down. So you simply tell us, I would rather be running this on an R34XL, and we'll go do that for you. Um, when your workload goes back down over time, you say, I'd rather be running this on a T2 micro. You make that same decision, we, we scale it back down for you, and you pay less over time. 
Availability and durability are obviously very key factors for running database workloads. This, these are your key business data. It's very important to have that. So um, our automation software is doing things that uh, sometimes take humans a lot longer to when, when we manage uh, infrastructure ourselves. So you know, when the EC2 instance crashes, you don't want to have to have a DBA woken up in the middle of the night and wander around, figure out how to replace that. Our automation just handles that for you. If you want high availability, if, if you've gone through the exercise over the last you know, few decades of building uh, high availability solutions, building data guard standbys, making all those decisions, standing those up, uh, with RDS, it's simple as just saying, I would like multi-AZ. We'll, we'll do all that for you. So, and we'll, we'll take a deep look at, look at how that works. Backup and recovery. You don't want to have to, DBA spent a lot of time, when, when, when we talk to DBAs about where their time goes, troubleshooting why backups didn't happen, or making sure backups did happen, or testing backups. That's all handled as part of the service. And of course, this goes to Amazon S3, which is incredibly durable with not 11 nines of durability. If anyone has a mental grasp on what 11 nines of durability really means, it's, 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 kind, of, it's kind of insane. So security is obviously very important as well. This, again, this is your key business data. So we have a lot of controls in place. And we'll, again, we'll go into a little bit of depth on these. But we have network controls. We have account controls. We have strong encryption available on storage and on the wire. Um, and of course, it's inexpensive. You get all these features of moving to the cloud. You get the agility and the elasticity, the ability to turn things on, turn things off, stop paying for things when you don't want to use them. Uh, obviously, the, you know, you're, you're moving from that capital expenditure model to the operational expenditure model where you're just paying for what you use. And again, scale down when you're appropriate. We don't mind if you're running a really big, expensive database server and you decide your workload justifies it, spin it back down, run in a smaller instance, pay us, pay us less. And we even have reserved instances to make that even a little bit more economical. Um, and with Oracle specifically, uh, we support a couple different licensing models for actually running your database workloads in RDS for Oracle. So we support what we call license included and bring your own license. So with license included, we simply roll the Oracle license into the hourly cost of your instance. It's our license. We manage it for you. You're just renting it from us. We'll handle support. Um, and we make that available for basically standard edition. So for 11.204, that's SE1. For 12.102, that's SE2. If you have your own licenses, own contract, own agreements with Oracle, that's fantastic. Bring those with you. Run those CPU licenses, processor-based licensing, on the, the RDS for Oracle in, in, in AWS. Um, you'll manage your own support. So you'll, you'll open support cases with Oracle when you run into problems. We'll work closely with you uh, for anything that you can't get to the instance. And it gives you a little bit more flexibility in running different versions and, and, and additions. So we do support enterprise edition. Um, occasionally, I talk to customers and they think that maybe it's just some sort of, there's, there's some magic or trickery happening here and we're making Postgres sort of look like standard edition. It's, it's a full database. It's the full Oracle Enterprise Edition product or standard edition product. We're just managing it for you. So today we support 11.204 and 12.102. And again, if you're doing BYOL, you can bring those Enterprise Edition licenses, the standard edition, standard edition one, standard edition two licenses. So I, I like this graphic because it kind of gives you an idea of what the breakdown is. So, when, when you look at the, the work that you do running database workloads today, where your DBA time goes, where your infrastructure spend goes, where your resources go, there's a lot of stuff between the, the floor tiles and the data center all the way up to the application connection string. So you're powering and cooling things, you're providing network, you're lifecycling hardware, deciding you know, what, what size servers to buy, hoping you get that decision right because you're going to have to live with it for a while. You're installing operating systems and patching them and installing database software. It's a lot of work. And it's a lot of work that doesn't make Coke taste better than Pepsi. It does, it, it's a lot of work 
that doesn't differentiate companies from their competitors. It's the same sort of stuff that everyone else does. You've probably heard the term undifferentiated heavy lifting or muck. That's what uh, AWS usually calls this work. It's the stuff that doesn't make you in any different than your competitors. So when you look at running an EC2, again, like our, like our customers did back in the old days of AWS, you can build all these workloads in EC2, and you're already off to the races with some pretty big advantages. We've taken care of all that data center management, physical security of your infrastructure, uh, powering, cooling, and making sure that it's done right. Um, there's there's a, a good benefit of doing this for very, very, very large scale as we've gotten pretty good at it. Just tell us what operating system you want. We have an Amazon machine image or an AMI. Go spin that up and you start running that. But from there, you're running your database yourself. You're still installing Oracle or MySQL or Postgres. You're still creating a database, tuning it, uh, managing it, taking backups, making sure the backups worked. So with RDS, when you move to this right column, you see that, that we're handling almost all of this for you. Your database patching, your OS patching, your operating system uh, configuration and installation, your backups, we're making sure those work again. And that leaves at the top this one last little box, which is a giant box, right? Application optimization. We've shoved a lot into there. That's, that's what makes you different from your competitors. That's what drives your business, and that's what drives your value. This was, what, what this does is, is let you spend a lot of time focusing just on that last box. This doesn't mean you don't need a DBA. This means that your DBA is spending all of their time doing uh, proper schema design and development, working with development teams, working on tuning, information lifecycle management, user management, making sure that the things that really matter, the things that really drive value to your business are being taken care of. So that's just kind of a really quick introduction to what RDS is, the overall value proposition to it. I'm going to go a little bit deeper on some of these issues, but first I'd like to bring up Siddharth, and he's going to talk about um, how Intuit uses RDS and their journey to it um, and what they've kind of learned along the way. Thank you. Yeah. Oh. All right. Hey. My name is Siddharth. I'm the chief architect for the small business division. Um, uh, just in case you don't know about Intuit, uh, just a quick primer on Intuit. Our goal is to power prosperity around the world, and we spend a, a, our major customers in the small business division, which I work in, are uh, small businesses across the world, of course. Self-employed, you know, think about your Uber drivers or your DoorDash drivers. Um, and we have got the tax division, of course. I'm sure many of you have used products like uh, TurboTax or Mint. Uh, so in particular, I work specifically on QuickBooks and the QuickBooks platform and ecosystem, which includes QuickBooks as well as uh, payroll, payments. There's a third-party developer platform on which today we have over 2,000 applications. And uh, about Intuit, you know, recognized as one of the world's leading companies, you know, um, um, and uh, all of Intuit's presence, uh, uh, products have a presence in AWS right now, um, Intuit Mint, Intuit QuickBooks, and Intuit TurboTax. Um, so how did our AWS journey start? So essentially, uh, a couple of years ago, our uh, CTO, Taylor Stansberry, was on the stage here at AWS. Actually, at the keynote, uh, he shared the plan that Intuit is planning to move everything to AWS. And that's when we started thinking about moving from uh, on-premise to AWS and started thinking about what it really means. Um, and so when you start charting your journey to public cloud, you really need to think about what is the reason you're actually doing this, you know, what actually underlies it. So our primary purpose was speed and agility. Um, 
And uh, I think Michael is going to touch upon this a little bit about how things work in a private data center as opposed to AWS, but I suspect uh, many of you already know, um, you know how you can ramp up the, um, the curve in AWS as opposed to private infrastructure. It's a completely different story. So it gives us the ability to more, move quickly. That is the number one reason for us to move to public cloud and move to AWS in particular. Uh, the second thing is our customers are everywhere, and we want to be where our customers are. And there are multiple reasons for this. There are performance reasons for us to think about it. There are compliance reasons, uh, especially when we are, you know, in a, a very, uh, uh, how should I say, government-regulated environment kind of, uh, you know, and our customers are expecting us to be compliant in every single region that we are in. And finally, the third thing, and this, this very uh, consciously is not the number one thing on the slide, it's, it's also about cost. Um, you know, uh, it, 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 when you are mature in cloud, you can actually be, um, uh, you can all, uh, cost optimize much better than you can in your own data center. So really for us, the, the, the key message I want to send out is velocity is what we think about all the time. How do we deliver faster, quicker, and uh, AWS is our answer for that. Um, so the other thing that's important to think about is, you know, how do you migrate and what should you be doing? You know, you, you look at the portfolio that AWS presents to you and it's almost overwhelming in the amount of choices that you can have. And for me, the way I think about it is, first of all, you know, there's complexity and complexity can be useful and there, there can be unnecessary complexity. If you're taking on complexity, there has to be a usefulness associated with it. I didn't come up with this. This was actually Larry Wall. I'm sure many of you have heard of Larry Wall, is uh, the uh, guy who wrote the Perl programming language and is a linguist. And uh, a corollary to this is, you know, useful is more important than cool. That is, uh, you know, there are lots of cool things we can do with AWS, but we are actually not very focused on that. Usefulness is uh, way more important. So I tried to look up and said, who actually said this? I couldn't find anyone, so I'm attributing it to myself. Uh, I don't know whether you found it uh, useful or not. I thought it was pretty cool. Oh, sorry. Um, so when you think about usefulness, this is the picture that uh, sits in my head. So the lower left quadrant is if it's uh, not useful and it's got low complexity, it's okay. It doesn't, it's not very complex. It's not really hurting you that much. So you're willing to tolerate this. If your complexity is high and it's not useful, you really don't want to be here. You're actually spending a lot of cycles without much productivity there. Um, the third thing is if the complexity is high and it's useful, you need to think about ways of simplifying this. And for us, uh, thinking about AWS, was this was a quadrant where we spent a lot of time because we, th we believe that we have simplified things dramatically by actually um, um, using AWS for things which were previously high complexity but were extremely useful to us. And the final thing, of course, is if the complexity is low and it is useful, that's actually great. Uh, you know, you actually want to encourage more of that. Uh, but really, it's the high complexity things that you really need to focus on. You want to kill things which have a high complexity and you want to simplify things uh, that have a high complexity and are useful. Um, so one last thing before I tell you some of the specifics about Oracle is about scaling philosophy. There's something you need to think about very hard uh, when you're moving to public cloud. Of course, even if when you're in your private cloud, you need to think about this. And the way we uh, uh, think about it is, uh, you know, you can think about the three dimensions in which you need to scale. The vertical axis over there is the services. So you, you need to decompose using services, have the vertical axis be the services. So you're hitting different endpoints for different services. 
The horizontal axis is horizontal duplication or read replicas. This is how you can offload uh, some of your workloads to your read replicas. Um, and the third thing is formulaic split. So for example, you might choose to shard based on customers, for example. Uh, for in our case, it's companies. You know, if a small business sets up a company, each one of those is a unit of uh, sharding. So a set of customers or companies get served from a particular cluster. And really, at the bottom left of this is actually the monolith. And it takes three steps to get from there to your ideal state. That is, uh, uh, you know, um, scaling around along three axes, which is horizontal duplication, services, formulaic split. This is actually, you can look this up, this is called the AKF cube. If you look up AKF cube in your favorite uh, search engine, you'll probably end up with a picture which looks pretty similar to this. So this is how we think about scaling. Um, so why did we end up choosing Oracle and RDS? So, so first of all, um, we were running on Oracle uh, in our data center, and one of the nice things about Oracle is it does pretty good optimization, you know, and some of our database workloads are pretty high, so we depend on the kind of optimizations that Oracle gives us. Um, we were not big fans of actually managing all this uh, on our own, and this is the part about uh, complexity, which is necessarily necessary, but not necessarily something we want to do. We are more than happy to have Michael and his team actually manage the patching and the backups and get help from them on actually things like high availability. And then read replicas. Now, uh, there's a reason there's an asterisk there. So we use My, MySQL in addition to Oracle. And one of the things we actually don't have uh, with uh, Oracle RDS is actually read replicas. Um, so um, the current QuickBooks platform in AWS had this one decision point. Whenever you're doing a migration to cloud, you can either have to do a lift or shift or a refactor and shift. And you need to think about whether you want to be cloud agnostic or AWS native. And for us, the answers were, um, sorry, we are, is that we are going to do a lift and shift and we are going to be cloud agnostic. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, we're going to be AWS native, I apologize. That is, we are not really trying to build any kind of abstraction layer on top of AWS. We are going to use AWS services as it exists. Um, so how did we do the lift and shift? So we are using Oracle in our data centers. So we just said we are going to use RDS Oracle. So that was the continuance that we wanted. Uh, we also use Cassandra and uh, MySQL, like I mentioned before. And of course, we use other standard technologies, ELBs, EC2, uh, ManageNAT for our egress proxy, CloudWatch, and so on. So um, let's look at some specific characteristics um, that you know, uh, we considered and um, chose how to approach things. So the first thing is uh, the you know, scaling I mentioned around on three axes, but a fundamental unit, the way we can grow uh, almost infinitely is by actually doing the sharding or for, you know, split based on a formula like your customers, right? So we shard and each one of our shards has data which ranges from somewhere between six to 12 terabytes um, of data per cluster. Uh, we used, for capacity, we used uh, provisioned IOPS. Um, high availability, you know, is an important consideration. So for HA, we are uh, we have uh, we deploy into multiple AZs. We deploy into three AZs. Um, 
Security is another aspect we think about. Uh, so if you get into a situation um, like an account compromise, one of the things we do is actually we do a cross-account RDS uh, snapshot uh, in addition to the regular backups that we do. Um, and security, um, you know, obviously, you, sh you know, you heard one of Vogel's earlier today, you know, uh, TDE kind of is just a flick of a switch. Uh, so that's uh, transparent encryption is something you absolutely need to be doing. In addition, we do other things also like application encryption on top of the uh, database uh, built-in encryption. And the reason there's a black box on the right is because it got redacted a little bit by our, uh, by our overly sensitive uh, PR team. So I'm sorry, I can't talk about what was in there. <laughs> talk to me later. Uh, so, backups, obviously you need to back up your data, so automated RDS snapshots, you know, out of the box, don't have to do a whole lot about that. Monitoring, so we use CloudWatch, and uh, we have additional cron jobs set up which uh, push custom CloudWatch metrics, uh, alerts, we use the database alerts, and we use uh, cron jobs to send uh, SNS notifications. Uh, replication is a three-way multi-master replication and data migration. Uh, so for your initial sync, you know, if you've got a ton of data, obviously you can use Snowball. For us, we kind of moved it a cluster or a shard at a time. So we just use Golden Gate to actually replicate into AWS. Uh, so these, this is my key takeaway. Uh, RDS Oracle performed as well or better than what it did in our data center. Um, scalability uh, and the ease of scalability is significantly better in, uh, in AWS. And uh, I'll, I'll mention some, in, uh, you know, some uh, interactions we had with the RDS team, which you know, uh, this is such a customer-focused company, is absolutely incredible. Uh, we actually used to have the general manager visit us fairly frequently and talk to us about what uh, uh, you know, the problems are and help us resolve them. I'll talk about some of them. And in general, the use of RDS has improved our velocity tremendously, which is exactly why we wanted to move to AWS to begin with. So uh, let me just talk about some interesting moments. Um, so actually, if you saw a press release a few weeks back, maybe a month back, is when uh, the database sizes were, you know, earlier there was a restriction of six terabytes as the maximum uh, database size uh, in, in RDS. And that was actually a problem for us because we actually had clusters which were much bigger and we didn't actually want to make it smaller. So we actually worked pretty closely with uh, the uh, uh, RDS Oracle team and that kind of ended up in us working together on releasing this uh, new functionality. I'm sure there were other customers who probably also asked for it. Um, so the other thing was we actually, in order to get the best performance for Oracle, um, the default page sizes in the kernel actually don't work for us in Linux, right? So the default page size is 4K, and we had actually, over time, learned how to tune the kernel parameters, and 4K wasn't the right number for us. So that was another instance where we, where we worked pretty closely with the RDS team to kind of figure out uh, how we can tune this, and this is now available for everyone to use. Uh, key management and encryption decisions. Um, uh, so uh, the key management, basically for us, you know, 
uh, we, we'd like to reduce the blast radius tremendously so that even if a particular account gets compromised, there's a limited amount of data that leaks. And we had to uh, manage keys at really high scale for which we came up with our own solution. Um, the final thing I will point out, which is something you need to be aware of, which is a general AWS concern, not an uh, RDS-specific concern, is there are actually limits on the uh, APIs that are being, uh, being used by, you know, for whatever reason that you're using. In a given account, there is a threshold of how many uh, requests you can make via APIs, and once you uh, get to that, you get, start getting throttled, which turned out to be an interesting experience for us. Just thought I'd throw that in. There is one thing which is not mentioned here, which I'll quickly mention, which is about the PSUs, or the quarterly patches which are released by Oracle. Um, what we didn't read in the manual very carefully was when the PSUs get applied, there's actually a downtime even if you're in multiple AZs. And so that's something you need to be aware of, and Michael can tell you all the details behind that. Uh, I kind of understand it, but obviously you can do a better job with that. So with that, I'm going to turn it back to Michael. Thank you very much, Siddharth. Intuit's been a really great customer, and we really love working with them. So we love to, to hear them talk about kind of the you know, things that they've run into along the way. So I'm going to try and take a, a little bit of a deep dive into um, start with new features and then discuss some of the core features of RDS for Oracle. So um, I always like to start with deprecation. So most of our customers, hopefully all of you running RDS for Oracle today, are on one of the major supported versions, 11.204 or 12.102. We do deprecate versions over time. So I always like to tell customers, this is not the place where you will run Oracle 8i for, you know, the end, until the end of its days. I'm sure Oracle still does have those customers, and, and I don't envy their, their support team having to work with that. But um, the, our commitment is to basically provide versions of, uh, and, and manage versions of Oracle that Oracle supports. And the same is true with all of the vendors that we work with, MySQL, Postgres, Microsoft SQL Server. So as long as Oracle is providing PSUs, will continue to allow customers to run those. At the point that they stop providing PSUs, that means that new security bugs will not be fixed. We have to get work with customers to get migrated off of those. So in the last year or so, we've deprecated 11.202, 11.203, and 12.101. 11.204 is obviously Oracle's pretty much most popular release ever. A lot of customers are still using it. Um, that's officially out of support today as of, I believe, May 31st of this year. That's an extended support through 2020. So as long as customers have those extended support agreements, they can still run those on RDS for Oracle. Um, at the point that Oracle stops releasing PSUs for 11.204, we'll go through the same process for that. So I always like to mention that just to kind of keep it in the forefront of your mind. Like Siddharth mentioned, um, you know, we, we do provide PSUs on a quarterly basis. Oracle releases the PSUs, and within a month or so, we'll, we'll have those out available to you. We, we don't have a, a hard SLA on that because there's a, a vendor dependency usually between us and, and whoever's providing them. We have to do a little bit of work to make sure that they're massaged in properly. We use a shared responsibility model, so uh, we don't just automatically apply PSUs to your instance. As Oracle DBAs, you would know that um, uh, that can often have optimizer impacts, uh, performance impacts, bugs that you might run into. So we want you to test those, but um, essentially we'll make those available as a new version. You'll see 11.204 v13, for example, came out a, a month or so ago for the July 2017 PSU. Just tell us that you want that. You'll make an API call to modify your DB instance, select the new version. We'll go through the, the steps of applying it for you, which if you've gone through many um, Oracle DB, uh, database upgrades, for PSUs it's not too bad, right? You, you apply the, the patches to the home, you shut down the database, you start it back up, you run cat PSU, that's not too bad. For a full version upgrade from 11.204 to 12.102, that's a lot more work. 
you, you have to you know, run cat up, uh, pre-installation checks, you have to do a bunch of validations, you run cat upgrade, that takes a long time. For RDS for Oracle, you just tell us if you want 12.102. Now, like Siddharth says, there is a downtime for that, so we do have to shut your database down. Um, that's just a limitation of, of uh, the, the database engines themselves, and, and once the databases are live patchable, we'll be able to live patch, but um, with, with Oracle to, to do these major version upgrades, we still have to take them down. We launched huge pages uh, this summer, and I'm gonna go into a little bit more depth in, in, on that in the next couple slides. So I'll skip over it for right now. We, we have what we call snapshot upgrade. This is kind of a cool feature for um, if you have those older snapshots that you've taken of your instance, uh, with RDS backup methodology, you just tell us that you want backups for some period of time, zero to 35 days. When you enable backups, we put your database in archive log mode. That means if you disable backups by setting it to zero days, we put your database in no archive log mode. It's kind of helpful to know when you're, when you're looking at new database workloads and loading databases. Uh, performance advantage there. Obviously, once you're ready to run in production, you obviously want to get that in archive log mode. Um, when you're in automated backups, we'll take a daily snapshot and then back up your archive redo logs every five minutes. Um, so that, that, that's a, a great durability guarantee to know that from, not even from your, your RDS instance, but from S3, you can pretty much re restore it at any point in time in the, up to the last five minutes, um, all the way up to 35 days. Now, you can also create manual snapshots, which you can essentially keep forever. So let's say you, you took a snapshot of your database a year and a half ago. It was still an 11.202 database, and you think you might want to use that at some point. Well, with Snapshot Upgrade, what, you, uh, what we allow you to do is specify a new version for that snapshot, in the background, we'll restore that snapshot, start the database, run through the upgrade, shut it back down, take another snapshot of it, and replace the old one once we've made sure that it worked. So that way you have a snapshot of an 11.204 database right now. Um, a few weeks ago, we, we added support for the R4 instance class. This is a, the new iteration of the R3 instance class. We've had a lot of customer requests for these. A lot more memory, newer CPUs, uh, bigger network throughput. Added a feature called start-stop. This is really great for um, non-production databases, for your development databases. What we saw a lot of customers doing um, when, when we looked at our API graphs, we'd see um, on Friday afternoon, a lot of databases would be shut down and deleted with, with a, a final snapshot. And then on Monday, those final snapshots would be restored as a database, um, and customers would start using them again. We figured out, well, customers don't want to run their development databases over the weekend if, if they don't want to pay for them. So we added the stop-start feature where it's kind of in the middle. Um, we shut the instance down. We, we basically get rid of the EC2 instance. Your EBS volume is still there. It's still warmed up. Your data is still ready. Uh, but you're no longer paying for the, the hourly cost of the EC2 instance. And then when you're ready to, to, to get going again, you just make an API call. We put another EC2 instance on it. We mount your database, start it, and you're back to the races. Um, one key thing to note about that is, again, it's for development databases only. And you can keep a database hibernated for as long as seven days. After seven days, we'll go ahead and bring the database back up for you. And the reason for that is that we, we need to be able to, to make sure that the data, database is healthy, um, make sure that the automation software running on the server is up to date, make sure that any OS patches are up to date. So we, we found seven days to be a pretty good compromise with development databases. Um, your, your mileage may vary in terms of, of, of how useful that is for you, but we've, we've seen a, a lot of uh, great adoption and great, great success with customers. Uh, we, we recently launched flexible reserved instances. This is basically just a, with the reserved instance model, you pay a little, instead of the, just the, the on-demand hourly cost of the EC2 instance, you pay a little bit more upfront, um, offset the cost of that instance, and then you get a lower, um, lower cost over one or three year period. With flexible RIs, you just get a little bit more flexibility in terms of the exact instance class uh, maybe if, if uh, you paid for an R416XL and you decided you really didn't need that, you can change it to, to two R48XLs. As long as they all, all add up back to the same size, you can do that now. So, 
Well, we've also updated some options. So now, with RDS, options essentially represent work that we have to do on the database server to install or configure a feature of the database. So with RDS, one of the trade-offs with, with having us manage your database for you is that you're not able to, to SSH to the host. You're not able to become root, and you're not, not able to become sysdba. And this, we're not greedy. We're not holding those, those uh, privileges for us because uh, we, we just don't want you to have them. Uh, the reason is that we're providing SLAs to you, we're managing your database, and, and we essentially can't, if, if you can get underneath us, then you, then you can keep us from keeping our promise to you, and we have to make sure that, that we can do that. So with options, we let you specify, we'll, we'll make a certain feature available via an option, and then if, if you would like that feature enabled in your database, you just go add the option to an option group, apply that to your instance, and then we'll install it for you. So we've made a few updates to these recently. We've launched spatial, locator, and multimedia. These are great options that not everyone wants in their database. Um, Spatial is an enterprise edition add-on license, so not everyone's licensed for it, but if you want these available, we'll go ahead and install those features for you. Oracle Application Express, we've, we've been a little bit behind on that, so, so uh, up until uh, a few months ago, uh, it was the, the versions available were 411 for 11G and 426 for 12C. So we've gone ahead and, and revved those up, so now you can install or upgrade to 504 and 512 uh, on either 11G or 12C if you're using Oracle AppX. Um, and then SQL T, or SQL T Explain, is a diagnostic and troubleshooting tool that a lot of customers have made requests for when you're working with Oracle support, trying to get to the bottom of a really nasty performance, tuning bug, trying to figure out where your time's going. SQL is kind of a nice tool for doing that. Again, not every customer wants that in their database, so we make it available as an option. And then Oracle Enterprise Manager Agent for cloud control. We added support last year for 12C cloud control. This year, uh, a month or two ago, we, we went ahead and added support for 13C release one and release two. Now, one of the gotchas with this, if you look at the Oracle compatibility matrix, agents and OMS, you should be able to sort of mix certain 12C and 13C versions, but the, the asterisk at the bottom of that is that there's a lot of bugs and patches you have to kind of address and get in place. So with uh, the OEM agent that you can apply to uh, RDS for Oracle instances via an option, we do require that the OMS version matches the agent version. So we support a couple of versions for 12.2 12, uh, cloud control, and now 13C R1 and 13C R2. So as long as the, the versions match, and our instance can reach your OMS instance, we'll install and configure the, the, OMS, the OEM agent for you. Now that, that last part is kind of an important thing. You've hopefully got your, your security groups and your network ACLs locked down to prevent too much egress from your database, but we will need that path open back up it is SSL encrypted, so it's, it's safe to do, but we, we need to be able to reach that OMS, which may be an EC2 or maybe back on premises. So I'm gonna talk about scaling and administering your, your RDS for Oracle instances. So scaling is obviously one of those great capabilities of the cloud. We're, we're agile, we're elastic. Uh, we, we take pretty good educated guesses at, at the instance size that we need for the workload that we're expecting. Sometimes we get that right, sometimes we get that wrong. So we need the ability to add more CPUs and memory. And the way we do that is by scaling instance classes. So with EC2, you have instance families, the R4, the R3, T2. And then within those, you have classes, the R4, 4XL, 8XL, 16XL. These all have different packagings of CPU and memory and network capabilities. Um, and so you kind of, those go up together in lockstep. So as you want to scale compute, you simply just pick, up, pick a different um, EC2 instance. Uh, specify the one that you want, you can, and then make an API call and tell us that you would like to run on that, and we'll make sure that you're running on that. So if you, you have the option of applying that immediately, with all of our modify API calls, you can either apply it immediately when, when you make the API call, or apply it in your next maintenance window. So each instance will have a maintenance window, and any maintenance tasks that you've queued up for us, we'll apply those in that next maintenance window. 
There is a brief outage when you, when you change compute type. We have to shut your database down on the EC2 instance it's running on, detach that from your EBS volume, spin up a new EC2 instance, and start that back up. Uh, with, if you're running with our multi-AZ solution for high availability, which I'll go into in a minute, that's, slight, uh, that's slightly reduced, so we're, we're simply doing a failover in that case. So it's, it's back down to 60 or so seconds of outage, but there is still a bit of an outage for that. We do recommend that you consider new instance classes when they come out. Um, you, you know, when, when, we're, when we're looking at the, the way we did things on premises, we generally bought things for three to five years, and we, we, we bought something, we committed to it, and we just ran on it, and we loved it whether we needed to or not. Um, with, with EC2, new instance classes are coming out every year, and some of them have newer, better CPUs. Some of them have different ratios of memory to CPU. They have different characteristics that might make us want to use them. So don't just you know, run on the, on the same EC2 instance that you've, you found solves your problem. As the, as the new ones come out, you might find that newer, faster CPUs mean you could license fewer processors, or that um, you can pay less for an instance in some case, just depending on, on, on what we've done. So I always do encourage customers to take a look as, at those, as those come out and see if they actually are better suited for your workload. On the storage side, we can change that online. So that's a really nice feature where I, I just say that I want more storage and we'll do the work. Um, you say I have a terabyte data, database and I'm getting sort of close to that limit, so I'd like it to be two terabytes and then we'll go ahead and do that work for you. You can change the size, increase only. Um, you can change the type of storage, so if you're using magnetic or standard, um, uh, general purpose IOPS or uh, SSE drives or uh, provisioned IOPS SSD drives, you can move back and forth between those. And if you're using provisioned IOPS, you can also change the number of IOPS that you've provisioned. This does happen online, so you don't, we don't take the database down, but there is some performance impact to it um, well, as, as data is being copied in the background. Now, one of the features, the, the new features that, that, uh, that Siddharth mentioned is we did recently expand storage to 16 terabytes. Um, if you look at the history of RDS, you know, we started kind of small, and back in the day, a terabyte made sense, and then it was three terabytes, and then six. Now we have 16 terabytes, and one of the things that we did with that is we've now, we're now able to take advantage of EBS elastic volumes, and these are pretty great because you just tell the volume to grow, and it grows, and uh, we don't have to wait and copy data. So, so the first time that you scale, um, scale storage uh, from here forward, you'll still see that little bit of a performance impact. The next time it will take advantage of elastic volumes and that scaling will be a lot faster. If you create a new instance today, you don't even have to worry about that. It'll just be running on EBS elastic volumes. And then as you say, you wanna go from one terabyte to two, two terabytes, it's just kind of available in a few minutes, again, with no outage. The one caveat to that to be aware of is that the way EBS elastic volumes work, you can only scale, perform those scaling operations every six hours. So you don't wanna add five gigabytes to your, your storage and then realize that that's not quite enough and then have to wait six hours. So you wanna be a little bit deliberate about it. It's a little bit better than it is today, so today it's, it can take a little bit longer and there's a, a bit of more performance impact, so that's still gonna be better, but you do wanna keep that, that six hour window in mind. So this is kind of a diagram to give you just an idea of, of, of what we sort of expect these workloads to look like once you move to the cloud. So, you know, again, back in that on-premises world, Scaling is kind of a step function. I'm running a server for three to five years, and then I, I decide I, I found a new server, and then I'm gonna buy that one and run it for three to five years. So if the, if, if the orange line is the size of that server that I'm gonna sit on for three to five years, that my, my finance people have approved me to buy, that I've sold my firstborn to acquire, it's gonna be sitting in my data center whether I'm using it or not. Uh, and the blue line represents my actual workload. You see that, you know, in order to, to handle a, a, a workload that grows over time, maybe linearly or maybe not, um, to start with, I'm gonna be over-provisioned, right? So in order to, to get to that point five years down the road where I'm, I'm still available, able to use that server, I probably start with a lot of headroom, and that means wasted resources. Um, and in reality, 
chances are you've provisioned that server and it's going to sit around in the data center for a few months to six months, sometimes even a year, before you've actually even gotten that workload running on it. Um, so the green line is, is represents what, what we see our customers doing with RDS. So you're running a lot closer to your workload. As it goes up, you're scaling instance sizes. As it goes down, you're scaling instance sizes. Um, and then, you know, where, where, where they cross the orange line, that represents where you're under-provisioned. You bought that server three or five years ago, and you hoped that it was going to be enough machine for you by the time you got to the end of its useful lifespan. If it's not, you're in a really bad place, right? You have to go convince finance to buy you another one, or you have to beg, borrow, and steal to, to move on to something else or go through a, a crash tuning exercise. So we find that, that with uh, the ability to, to dynamically scale instances, um, you're, you're able to stay a lot more close to that, that workload line and get a lot more uh, price performance efficiency out of, uh, out of your uh, server instances. Now, huge pages, I like to go into this in a little bit of depth just because it's a somewhat new feature for us. Obviously, on-premises, you've probably have been using huge pages for quite a while. Um, for, as we started um, scaling to large sizes with larger memory, we figured out that this is a pretty important feature for our customers. Uh, we launched this in July. Um, so, and, and there's a few caveats around it, so I thought I'd just spend a little bit of, of time here. You enable this via parameter group, and this is what Siddharth was referring to when he talked about tuning kernel parameters. So obviously, if you can't get to the instance, you can't tune kernel parameters because you can't go edit sysutl.conf and run those commands on the instance. But the way this works, it's kind of like the declarative model of, of you know, relational databases in general. You just tell us you want it, and then it goes and happens in the background. So um, these are enabled via parameter groups. So we have the, the use large pages parameter that we know and love. That tells, we set that to only, and that's going to enable uh, large pages on, on the database instance. You do have to disable automatic memory management and enable automatic shared memory management. So that's just an Oracle limitation. The new, the new uh, AMM does not work that was introduced in 11.2, does not work with huge pages. So you have to go back to, to, to managing uh, your shared memory and your PGA memory separately, but that's not too big of a deal. And then do a quick bounce. When we see that you've set that parameter, we'll go ahead and enable huge pages at the, the host level, start your database, and now you're running a lot better. Um, we take care of all that for you. Now, with newer instances, that's going to get a little bit easier. So starting with the R4 family, newer, larger instances will just have huge pages enabled by default. This is the, the sort of gotcha. With the existing instances, we didn't want to change behavior out from under customers. So we didn't want to have you restore an R3.8XL from a snapshot and all of a sudden have it perform completely differently than it was before. So for existing instance classes, you'll opt into this. For newer instance classes, this will just happen in the background. And we've seen, talked to customers that have seen real benefit from this already. And I encourage you, if you're running workloads, especially in the above 100 gigabytes of memory range, take a look at this, try and enable it, and you'll see that in some cases you can actually, um, one customer I talked to was actually able to scale down in instance class because the memory and CPU were being used just much more efficiently. So obviously with huge pages, your, um, your memory overhead, the, the, the page cache that Linux manages to keep track of where all those 4K pages of memory are gets really big over time. With huge pages, that's a much smaller cache. And then there's a lot of CPU effects as well. You're no longer using swap back memory. You're no longer having uh, cache misses on the CPU itself. So you get a lot more uh, performance benefits out of that. So your mi mileage may vary. Definitely encourage you to take a look at it and make sure that you understand how it looks in your environment. So administering RDS Oracle in, in, in general. So um, you know, again, it's just an Oracle database. There's not a lot of, of magic that we're doing there. We're trying to make as much of the capacity of the database available to you as you can, again, without giving up too many of, of the privileges that would let you get underneath us. But you know, very often, there's just a couple of small changes that you need to make when you work with RDS. So, I'll go through a few of these. 
one of the things that one of the privileges we restrict you from having is Ultra System because you can make some changes to the database with Ultra System um, that would prevent us from keeping our SLAs. But that's okay because we've given you some some ways to do the things that you need to do with that. Um, and generally, you know, in the cloud, it's not very cloudy to do Ultra System set parameter on the database instance itself because that, maybe that database instance can go away. And we want these sorts of things to be fungible across instances to be reproducible. Um, and so what we use for that is parameter groups. With a parameter group, you go into your account, you create an RDS parameter group. It's specific to the version and edition of Oracle that you're using. You'll specify your parameters that you want that are tuned to certain uh, factors for your instance classes. Um, they have some nice substitution factors. So for example, you don't have to specify 75 gigs of SGA for every instance. You can specify that every instance gets half of the physical memory on the server or whatever ratio seems sensible to you. Um, and then you can apply those parameter groups to multiple databases. And that way, um, this is a really great automation feature for RDS that, that lets you um, get a lot of assurance to, to your, your environment. You set this parameter group across all of your instances, and now you no longer have to worry about whether I, as a DBA, forgot to, to set the right parameter on the right instances. If, if I'm doing this by hand as a human, you know, if I do it 80 times, I'm going to get 60 of them pretty, pretty solid, pretty close to right, and the other 20, God only knows. Um, and similarly for features, so we talked about option groups. So features that you would normally go, you know, run an RDBMS admin script to, to install a feature in the database, we, we do that for you with option groups. Alter database is another privilege that, that we, we don't give you, uh, give you access to, but in most cases we've given you PLSQL wrappers around functionality that you would use there anyway. So these are all documented on our, on our product pages, but things like um, enabling force logging, enabling supplemental logging, adding log files to the redo log groups, resizing redo log files. You can't do those directly with Alter database, but you can use RDS admin packages. So in almost every case where you need to do something to the database, we've given you a way of doing it. With backups, you're no longer managing backups yourself. You're no longer running backups and making sure that they ran and trying to restore them to make sure they work. You just enable RDS snapshots. If you would like to make sure that the, the if, if you like that assurance that your snapshot works, um, just simply go restore it and create an instance and see it in action and, and you can get that comfort. And then most of the tools like OEM, uh, Toad, the things that you connect to the database, again, it's just a database and most of those things just work. So high availability. Going to talk about our multi-AZ product real quick. This is the, uh, the AWS global infrastructure. This map gets more and more crowded every time we show it, and I'm, I'm sure this is probably already out of date. Um, each of these dots represents a region that we have around the world, and the number inside the dot represents the number of availability zones that we have inside that region. Uh, these are built around the architecture that Amazon retail, sort of, you know, through blood, sweat, and tears over 20 years, we figured out the right way to build really, really scalable global infrastructure, and this is kind of the, the outgrowth of that. So what's a region? Well, a region is, I like to think of it as a geographic location where you can build highly available applications. Within each region, we have one or more availability zones. These are, you can kind of think of it like a data center. Under the covers, it might be one or two data centers. In some cases, it might be seven data centers. It's kind of a useful abstraction. And the key thing is that availability zones are close enough together to each other that you can get one to two milliseconds of latency between them. That's really important for synchronous replication. They're far enough apart from each other that the things that are likely to affect one are not likely to affect the other. So they have distinct power supplies, distinct floodplains, distinct uh, network fiber capabilities. So if, if, if there's a fiber cut, it's only going to affect one and not the other. And obviously, they're, they're connected. The availability zones themselves are connected via high-speed dark fiber. The regions themselves are connected either over the public, public internet or, in many cases, over our, our own high-speed dark fiber. I think James Hamilton's going to be talking again this evening. He's always a, a riot to listen to, and he's, um, he, he always goes into great detail on the, the network infrastructure if you're interested in that. And he talks about kind of the cool stuff, the, the actual infrastructure under these. But um, this is just kind of a quick overview of, of, of how it works. So when, when you're building your applications, 
let's say you're in a zone with, in a region with three availability zones. You've got your application servers replicated across all of those. Now, we do recommend that you put your application servers in as many AZs as you have in a region. Gives you the most flexibility and the most capability of, of uh, avoiding certain types of outages. The database is sort of a singleton object, though, so that's got to go in one place. So you're, you're running fine. You've got application servers in three AZs. You've got all the resilience that offers. But you've got a database in one availability zone. And when something happens, your applications are down. That's not a very good thing. That makes your customers sad. So what we offer is called RDS multi-AZ can kind of think of it as RDS2AZ. But essentially what we do is we take that database, and you just tell us again, just an API call, I would like multi-AZ enabled, and we'll restore a snapshot of your database in a second availability zone. I like, to, I like to note that we're restoring a snapshot of your database. And one of the things that means to me as a DBA is that every single day, thousands of times, RDS is restoring our snapshots and exercising our backup and restore infrastructure. So it gives me a little bit of, of confidence that, that backup and restore works fine. We restore that snapshot. We get it in sync with your, with your primary. We enable physical replication. This is happening at the storage layer, so this is going on beneath your database. Cool thing about that means that we're doing the same thing for, our, for RDS Postgres, MySQL, Oracle Enterprise Edition, and Oracle Standard Edition. This is not a licensed feature. This is just happening in our infrastructure. Your endpoint that you connect to the database is actually a C name, so that gives us a little bit of flexibility there. So we point that C name at your primary. Something bad happens, your primary is suddenly unavailable, our automation recognizes that, and because we've been synchronously replicating to your primary, it's a perfect clone of, of, of your primary in your secondary. And that way, when we detect that there's a problem, we detect that either the rack or the hard drive or the facility or the network or the availability zone or anything along that line has failed, we can automatically do that failover to the secondary. We simply repoint that DNS C name so you don't have to make any changes to your application, do crash recovery on, on, the, on the, the new primary, connect your applications or backup, 60 to 120 seconds. Um, what I don't show here is, is that we'll automatically go ahead and, and put a new secondary back in place as soon as this is done. So within a few minutes, you're, you're back up in high availability. Depending on what caused the, the primary to go down in the first place, that can take some time. But uh, this is, uh, basically gives you the ability to, to weather a, a huge number of, of things that might affect a single instance. So what affects the time, the 60 to 120 seconds or one to two minutes? Well, when, when you're, you're running along and then bam, something bad happens, it takes us a few seconds to identify that that failure occurred. Generally, it's pretty quick. And then we do two things in parallel. Again, it's a clone of your database. It's synchronously replicated. So all we're doing is, is starting the database. And it, from its perspective, if you look at the alert log, it didn't see there's no failover. It just knows that it's starting again. It doesn't even know that it moved locations. It's got to do crash recovery. How long that takes is going to be a function of the size and performance of your database and what sort of transactions were going on at the point that it effectively crashed. Oracle's you know, really, really robust at crash management and it's usually going to come back up pretty quickly. And then at the same time, we're, we're doing a, the, the propagation of that DNS C name change. So the, the key thing here is in order to, for your applications to handle this, your applications need to have some sort of connection pulling in place that detects that they failed to connect to the database when it went down. They retry to connect to the database, and there's some sort of back off and retry process there, because it's going to be a minute or so that that's happening. And they have to be able to do DNS lookups. So that's kind of important. It, it, you know, certain older versions of Java used to cache DNS forever. That was a bit of a problem. So the application does need to be able to, to make, sure that it, make sure that it can find the database. But the cool thing about this is that you know, very often the database, you can have a, a, an event that causes your database to fail over. 
DBA doesn't even know about it, because right, these don't happen at two in the afternoon on Wednesday when you just had a cup of coffee and you're ready to solve a problem, right? This, this happens at three in the morning when you know, you've been, you're, you're groggy and, and you don't want to be woken up. And this just happens automatically in the background. Now as the DBA, you want to push your application teams to make sure that they've tested this and they know how the application's going to respond, because the DBA doesn't get woken up at 3 a.m., but the application owner does. They're probably going to wake you up and you're not going to have a great day. So we do encourage customers to test this. We have an API. Um, Reboot DB instance uh, allows you to restart your database anytime you want. If you pass the force failover flag, we'll exercise the exact same machinery that would be used in the event of an actual failover. We're not kind of trickily, quietly switching you over to the, the other one. We'll actually just black hole your primary. The automation takes over, starts up, um, and, and that way you can test your applications, make sure that you, you understand the implications when this occurs, make sure you know how they're going to work. And finally, security and compliance. Security is job zero for us at Amazon. Our employees' trust is one of the most important things. We, we have a tattooed on our bodies. It's, uh, the earning the trust of our, of, our, of our customers is incredibly important to us. Um, so we have security kind of all over the place. Everything from uh, the physical controls uh, of your infrastructure. I've, I've been with Amazon for almost eight years, and I've never seen the inside of an AWS data center. We just don't get to do that because we, we maintain the, the physical integrity of, of the server infrastructure. When, when it comes to what you can actually do yourself, though, configuring your environment, you want to put some of these controls in place yourself. Um, so we have encryption in a few places. Encryption's available at rest. If you're using Oracle Enterprise Edition and you've licensed the advanced security option, we do have TDE, or transparent data encryption. Again, you just tell us that you want that via an option. We'll do that for you. We'll create wallets and keys and make sure the wallet's open. If the wallet closes for some reason, our automation will detect that, open it back up, and make sure that you can access those encrypted table spaces. We also support TDE with the hardware security modules, or HSM. It's a bit more of a brittle configuration, but it gives you full control over those keys. It integrates with Oracle's TDE product. And again, you'll manage the HSM device. Our automation will manage the wallet and make sure that it's open and can reach it. And then across all of our additions and engines, we do support what we call encryption at rest. And this is kind of the easiest one available. Um, this takes advantage of EBS storage encryption, which integrates with Amazon Key Management Service, or KMS, gives you full control over the keys. The storage volume itself is encrypted. All that happens entirely transparently beneath the database. Database doesn't even know it's there. Obviously, encryption in transit's important, those connections between your on-premises database. Hopefully, your application's connecting via some sort of a VPN from on-prem into AWS, so you're not over the open internet with, with packets of unencrypted data flowing around. But if you do have that sort of uh, open connection, uh, encryption in transit is important here. We do support Oracle's native network encryption, the SQL net, uh, you know, encryption required server, encryption required client, those sorts of things, as well as SSL. So again, you enable this via an option, you just tell us you want it. We'll configure the SQLnet.org for you, and in the case of SSL, we'll create certificates. You'll actually have to download a certificate bundle and put that in a wallet on your, on your client applications, but not a lot of work to that, and that way you get that wire encryption. So security, again, we manage those physical controls, host access, operating system, all that's on us. Um, there is a, a shared responsibility model, like Siddharth referred to, the how the database patches are applied, that's our automation. When the database patches are applied, that's your decision. You opt into those. Um, and then so, so we're going to manage most of those aspects. You're going to manage things like your users and privileges, your, um, your access to data, so you know, row level and, and, and column level security in the database features. You're going to enable your audit and the network controls. So you don't ever want to have an Oracle database just directly attached to the open internet. You want to use those security groups. You want to use those VPNs. You want to make sure that your VPCs are, are properly configured 
um, to, to keep you off the open internet. And this is a, a diagram lifted just from our EC2 pages. I, I won't go through the whole thing, but the idea here is that, that we provide the tools that let you create those layers of security around your database. If you can think of the, the subnet one box on the left side as being where your database lives, the subnet two maybe is where your application servers live. You can see there's a lot of layers between you and the open internet. You've got these, these, uh, these uh, network ACLs configured, you've got these security groups configured, so that ideally only your application servers inside of your VPCs even have access to your database server, and probably some jump boxes or DBA, DBA bastion hosts. Um, so definitely it, configuring network security is something we consider very important. Um, and then auditing is, is pretty important. We do offer auditing uh, both of the AWS API layer, so you can do CloudTrail auditing of everything that a DBA or somebody in your organization makes an API call if they create a database, if they modify a database. All of that can be audited. You can see what's going on. And then all of the, the in-database auditing with Oracle that you know and love, uh, audit trail parameters, setting that to the database or, or the file system, you could use that as well. And of course, this dovetails into compliance. Um, a lot of our customers that are in the financial and regulated industries or in the government industries, um, they, they have a lot of uh, compliance work to do, and we work very closely with uh, the auditors and regulators on those. We've got, it, this is just a, some, some cute pictures, but we've got dozens of, of compliance programs that we're involved with. The very specific one that affects you, you know, get in touch with us, check out aws.amazon.com slash compliance and see what needs to be done. The, the key thing to know here is that these are all shared responsibility models. So we manage the security of the cloud, you manage the security in the cloud. So we make sure that all the tools are in place, all the physical controls are signed off on, all of that work has been signed off with auditors. You actually need to make sure that, that uh, you're leveraging the right capabilities and tools, you're using the, the certified features, and have everything configured properly. So um, if that affects you, you get in touch, and, and uh, we, we've got people that work with a lot of customers on those. So just a quick recap. Um, you know, RDS, the value, overall value proposition, we're simplifying your infrastructure management. We're, we're not replacing your, your, your DBA role in terms of application tuning and configuration and lifecycle management. That's still very important work that you have to do. We're simplifying your life in terms of infrastructure that a lot of, a lot of times people just don't want to do anyways. Um, we're allowing your DBAs to focus on those high value tasks. And, and we're building automation standardization. These things let you really be really agile and fast and, and deploy with really great velocity. You build highly available, reliable applications without having to go do all that work of standing up standby instances and building disaster recovery instances and deciding what the right network paths are for those. You just tell us that you want those and we do those. And obviously giving you the ability to run securely with a few clicks of a button and great auditability is very important for our customers. So we do have some documentation pages, resources, white papers, check these out. This presentation will be online, I believe on YouTube in the next week or so. So if you didn't catch any slides, um, you know, don't worry, those will be available. Um, and otherwise, that's that. I really appreciate your time. Um, I think we have three minutes and 40 seconds for QA. Um, so if there's any questions, I'd be happy to answer those, and then I'll be sticking around afterwards. So you, sir. Oh, yeah, we do have microphones in the audience. Yep. Uh, yes, uh, thank you for the presentation. Uh, for the data replication, you said it doesn't support read-only data replication. Is there any product on the marketplace that can support that? I mean, third so, so the question is, is, is basically read replicas for Oracle, so we, we don't support those today. We do support those with MySQL and Postgres. With Oracle, and we're not there yet on, on read replicas. There's not, so if the question is if, the, if there's products available today to make that easier. Um, there's replication products available, so um, logical replicas are, are, are what are available. So you can use Golden Gate, you can use Amazon Database Migration Service, which is a whole, thing, whole topic to go into. We probably should have called it the AWS Database Replication Service, but um, you can do ongoing replication, share plugs, those sorts of things work. And, and these work with the RDS, I mean, or do Correct. I have to go? Correct, yeah, so they, so they do work with RDS. Okay. 
Just last one. Do you have benchmarking for Oracle on RDS? So the question is, do we have benchmarking for Oracle on RDS? And unfortunately, Oracle prohibits customers from posting benchmarks uh, of, of Oracle workloads. We don't, find, we don't think that that's all that useful anyways. So um, if we post a benchmark for a particular instance class for a particular workload, that tells you how that benchmark performed. Your application that you run in production is probably not HammerDB. So um, you know, knowing how well that performs probably isn't too helpful. So we do encourage to prototype do proof of concepts, do test, make sure that you understand how, how um, you know, the slightly different architectural components are going to work for you. Thank you very much. Sure. How do you keep the, um, when you have AZ replication, how do you keep them in sync? So the question is how do we keep uh, the multi-AZ replication in sync? We, we have software that we run, um, that's sort of the, in the infrastructure level below your EC2 instance. We, we take care of that for you. So we have, we have software that's, that's um, doing that synchronous replication between availability zones, and if it gets, falls behind for some reason, the automation figures that out, and in some cases it'll just replace the, the standby, or the, the secondary instance. In some cases it'll rescue it and, and make sure things are caught up, but, but that's just something that our automation handles under the covers. All right, and you have to pay for another Oracle license. Obviously. Correct, you're, you're, uh, so the question is, is, do you have to pay for another Oracle license? So, so we do have the software installed on the, on the secondary today, so with, or, with Oracle's licensing terms, you do license that secondary uh, running in, in, in the second availability zone. Do you do log shipping, is that how you, like DMS? Um, it's, uh, well, I, I won't say it's magic, but uh, it's just, and, and, the, and the reason that we're, we're cagey about answering that is just, it kind of, we treat it as something that doesn't matter to customers. So what we're actually doing under there is, is, is today it's one technology, tomorrow it could be a different technology if we decided on a different way to do it. Um, the part that's, that's useful for you to know is that there's a synchronously replicated secondary there. Okay, well, I'll take one last question and then I'll have to do the rest before they boot me out of here. You introduced a couple of days ago bare metal instances. Is it going to be available for RDS for Oracle? So the question is, is that are the newly released bare metal instances going to be available for RDS Oracle? I have no idea. Those just came out yesterday or the day before. So we don't, you'll notice those are built around the i3 platform. We don't today support the i3 platform. All of our storage is on EBS. So. You know, we're always looking to the future, looking to, to new resilient technologies, but, uh, but it's, it's early days for the, for the bare metal. Okay, thank you very much, everyone. I really appreciate you spending your evening with us. I hope everyone enjoys the, the rest of the conference and the replay. I'll be sticking around, so if there's any other questions, I'll answer questions down here until they boot me out and then in the hallway and then at a nearby bar probably. I know so. you said this is gonna be up there. Could you back it up? I'm sorry? Could you just back it up one, please, for a moment? Oh, absolutely. I'm sorry, yeah, back up the slides to, uh, to get some of uh, th those documentation links.